0: And now, our feature presentation.
1: I like it spooky.
2: Hey everybody, welcome to the I Like It Spooky Horror Podcast. I'm Brian.
0: I'm Jason. I'm Clint. And throughout the entirety of this show, I will be referring to our Brian here as Spooky Brian, because here in just a bit, we will be joined by a writer, Godzilla expert, and unique cinema connoisseur, Brian Clark. But first, let's get to the news.
3: So I got some kind of exciting news here. I mean, exciting to me. Nobody else will probably care, but I'm still going to talk about it because, you know, it's our show. So um, Halloween, Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had some Halloween news, but no, nothing right now. But Code Orange. Ghoulies. (laughs) Ghoulies is getting released to 4K physical media in September, September 12th, a brand new restoration of ghoulies. I'm excited for this. I mean, just, you know, it goes right back to your childhood. Like I said, brand new restoration, uh, Dolby Vision with it, a lot of interviews, special features. I don't know if any of these were on previous releases, but it'll be kind of fun just to see anyway and explore all that. Comes with a 4K Laser Vision mini poster. Ooh. Also, uh Ghoulies 2 will be released that day, but just in Blu-ray. They're not doing the whole 4K treatment for that. Kind of get a new release on the Ghoulies 2 pack right before Halloween. Depending on the price, I'm interested in picking this up.
0: I love the first Ghoulies. It's it's got some some real stark imagery. Yeah, when you get into part 2, 3, and I think there was a 4 maybe, you know, I got to that kind of silly popcorn cinema type stuff, but uh oh, the first one's fantastic.
3: Yeah, I'm excited for that. I'll, I'll check them out hopefully, unless they're like, you know, 40 bucks.
0: Does it say who's releasing it?
3: MVD uh, distribution. I've heard of them. It's the... I think that's the MGM group doing it, but there's a lot of MVD releases. So, nope, not like a Scream or TerrorVision Terror Vision or a Scream Factory, anything like that. Just mgm's own distribution
2: i was hoping you were gonna say vestron and i was like well, their stuff's really affordable i'll buy it all from vestron
3: i would have loved it because yeah they're always come out at a great price point so ghoulies
2: one and two 4k and dvd or blu-ray dvd blu-ray Shit. Yep. yep. <laughs> i say dvd i've been talking to my friends all week and they're like uh you buy any dvds lately i'm like who the hell still buys dvds and then a friend rod hutchinson works at walmart and he's like Walmart's 70 percent of walmart's physical media sales are dvd shit still
3: yeah that's interesting i think yeah. it's still the number one media that is sold well and looking at this i just went ahead and looked it up uh amazon has ghoulies for 33 bucks for the 4k kind of prices me out of it but I'm sure it's going to drop in price pretty quick after that, so I'll, I'll still be able to get it. You know, if you special order it or if you pre-order it, and the price drops, you get that money back. They'll match that. Yep.
2: I bought that Arrow box set for a hundred, and then it was like seventy bucks a couple weeks later, so I got thirty dollars back.
3: Oh well, yeah, score!
2: I'm still waiting on it. It's been pushed back a couple times. People that went to Texas Frightmare got it.
3: Oh, I was about to say I've seen it.
2: Yeah, they have it. Yeah, they just haven't sent it to anybody. Yeah, it's not shipped to anybody that I've saw. My news, exciting to me because I will be there. They announced the first guest... At the World Drive-In Jamboree in Vegas in October 6th, 7th, and 8th. And it sounds like Saturday night, legendary director, producer, distributor, writer, and mentor to dozens of Hollywood stars, Roger Corman's going to be there. Um, My guess is we'll get two Roger Corman movies for the Saturday night viewings. They don't announce the movies. It's kind of like the show. They surprise you. It's going to be hot as shit, though, and Roger's old. So I hope they have, like, a tent or a trailer (laughs) set up. Like, you go in and you meet him, and you can get autographed, maybe a picture with him, because on Saturday that bands celebrities vendors you get autographs and pictures and uh sounds like it's also going to be a special episode of the show so i know they recorded last year's jamboree but they've not released it it was supposed to be like an episode of the show but it never came out so hopefully this year's different that they record it and release it and maybe you'll see my ugly face on tv i'll probably cut that part out but yeah
3: in Vegas does it get cooler when the sun goes down? I'm sure it does, but I wonder like how much it drops.
2: I think it's extreme, like it's 80 in the day and then the sun goes down and it's like 50. So you'll have to like have a jacket at night.
0: I think it's more than 80 in the day, but it, again you run into that uh you run into that argument of the dry heat versus the humidity that we deal with in the Midwest. So, you know, it's hot, but I don't think it's too bad. Yeah,
2: I hope in October it's not like 100, you know, I'm hoping more like 80s in October. Yeah, but there's a lot of people camping out and I'm just like, they got big ass spiders and scorpions and (laughs) all kinds of shit and camping. I'll be tired. I want to sleep. If I sleep, you want to sleep in a bed, right? I mean, if you had a camper,
0: yeah. I forget the rating you gave Kingdom of the Spiders and we covered that a few episodes back, but I think it was a pretty favorable rating. So the spiders will probably leave you alone.
2: (laughs) I think it was like a seven or so. Comfort movie. They'll be cool with you. Yeah, the scorpions won't be, or the snakes, the people. (laughs) Or the people. (laughs) If you're at this big festival and all these people are sleeping outside, it's going to be noisy. Would you be able to sleep? I mean, it's right by the airport. And it kind of prices me out. You would have to pay for every night to sleep there. And I'd have to buy a tent and sleep because I'm not going to take that on the flight. I'd have to leave it all there. I'd be in a hotel at a casino. Hopefully they have a good buffet. What kind of news you got, Clint? (laughs) Any buffet news?
0: No buffet (laughs) news. (laughs) Damn it. So my news comes from Dread Central. This uh, story actually hit my radar a couple weeks ago. I've been wanting to talk about it on Spill the Guts, but I saved it for here. It is Jason's favorite actor, Richard Brake. Just kind of digging at Jason. If you remember a while back, we covered the monsters, and he was like, I don't know if I like Richard Brake in that. And I was like, dude, that guy's intense. I'm going to fucking tell him when we see him at a convention. He's going to kick your ass. <laughs> so he's got a movie coming out called The Gates. This is a new film, and it's one hell of a way to uh, make a feature. Feature debut directed by Stephen Hall. Basically, what's going on here is he is a serial killer and he is conducting like this ritual to bring back his deceased wife. And as he's doing like the, the last sacrifice or whatever he gets interrupted by the police he gets sentenced to death in the electric chair and this is a period piece also i'm trying to this is yeah it takes place in london in the 1890s trailer out for it so when i when i first read this when i first heard of this i thought of like uh, west craven shocker i thought of uh oh i think it was called the last horror show it was supposed to be house 3 the sandman from the 90s came to mind and so i thought it was going to be kind of comic booky cartoony but i tell you what i watched the trailer and it's very serious melodramatic the lighting looks looks great. It shot well. It looks pretty vicious. And Richard Brake just looks amazing as this crazed serial killer. So that's my news. I don't see a release date or anything yet. Check it out on YouTube, The Gates, and you can watch an exclusive clip. And then hopefully we can watch this in its entirety soon.
2: You said a period piece, huh? 1700s? 1800s.
0: Yeah. 1890s. London in the 1890s. When was uh, When was Jack the Ripper?
3: The later 1800s, like 1870s, 1880s.
0: Between August and November of 1888, so probably not. I didn't read anything in the in the article from Dread Central about it being tied in with Jack the Ripper, but that'd be an interesting little twist.
2: And if they do it, well, you and I kind of talked about these comfort movies. If they do it well and they do the period piece well, those are kind of becoming comfort movies as I age, you know, just because you can see the stylized look of the movie and take in some history. And it's just soothing for some odd reason, even though people are being massacred and this guy's sitting in the electric
3: chair. Right. You
2: get all this beautiful film work and all this stunning visuals. And yeah, if I got to watch five minutes of some guy getting shocked to death, I don't think they'd
0: <laughs> draw it out that long. Yeah. <laughs> I kinda of left out this part. It's probably an important part. In his final hours, he puts a curse on the prison and all who's in it. And just based off the uh the artwork of, you know, like the poster of the film, kinda of looks like he gets sentenced to death and then comes back and it turns into a supernatural film and he starts taking everybody out. And then actually I'm reading further into the article. Uh it does I have a release date. It comes to digital and video on demand on June twenty seventh. So yeah, we uh we get to see this soon.
2: Definitely worth checking out.
0: So it looks like Richard Brake's going to get shocked to death. You know what else is shocking? The lack of money that's in my wallet because I actually bought some stuff this time. How about you guys? Why are we so poor?
2: So now that we've heard the news... On this special installment of "Why Are We Poor?", we have a guest, Brian Clark, is going to tell us all about all the Godzilla shit he's bought. Right, Brian?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> one of the things I'm I'm poor for several reasons. Uh, Severin <clears throat> Films, who I know Brian's a big fan of, uh, recently released a box set of Emmanuel movies, like. All of the Laura Gems are Emmanuel movies, 22 movies in this massive bundle. And there was one, of course that they always have extra bits and pieces and, add-on things you can get. Well, they had one that had special pen from the hotel in Singapore that Emmanuel stays at in one of the movies, a Severn Airlines carry-on tote bag, some pins, some stickers, some other things, and a full-blown goddamn Emmanuel tabletop board game. And because I'm a huge fan of Laura Gemzer's Emmanuel movies, I had to get the whole big bundle with the board game. And then Umbrella Films... Uh, An Australian label uh, released on 4K, one of my absolute favorite movies of all time, Razorback, in a special edition bundle yet again, goddammit, with a reprinting of the original novel that the film was based on with expanded pages of behind-the-scenes photos and anecdotes, a t-shirt, a reproduction movie poster, and a little action figure of the pig, like a little reaction Super (laughs) 7-style egg figure. And because I'm a sucker for all of these special extras, of course, I had to buy all that too. But the biggest reason I am poor, yes, does involve Godzilla. And I have it right here beside me. So there is a company called Passion Tank that makes... High-end Godzilla called Sofubi soft vinyl figures, and I managed to get a hold of a glow-in-the-dark blank one. Now these they they make very limited runs of all of their colors, so they're, they're hard to get. But I snagged one off Yahoo Japan auctions for a reasonable price. And I sent it off to a guy who does custom toy paint jobs. So this is my one-of-one one Passion Tank Shin Godzilla custom painted. I know my the listeners can't see it, and my camera isn't very good to show you guys all the colors. It's extremely vibrant and colorful, and it glows in the dark, and it's huge. Orange fins, kind of a bluish-black body. So it's sort of a Halloween uh, Godzilla. <laughs>
3: Does the whole thing glow or just the little white part?
1: Well, now mostly just the little white parts. It was originally just a solid white figure. So all of this color was, was airbrushed on by this guy. And I just told him to, you know, here here's the figure. I trust you. I like your style. I like what you do. Go nuts! So basically, doubled the cost of this damn thing by having this guy paint it. It's absolutely <laughs> worth it. It is.
0: I wonder. I wonder if having it painted would diminish the the value just because it's not original. But it looks absolutely fucking amazing
1: oh yeah this isn't some uh, a kid sitting in his garage with a paintbrush kit this is like this dude does pro level work it's amazing it looks better than most of well not most it looks better than all of the standard production run godzilla figures in my collection so yeah this is the crown jewel for sure but uh but the value i mean i'm not getting rid of this thing it's the only one of its kind that looks like this in existence so you know it's It's not getting resold.
0: (laughs) It'd look a lot cooler in a display box. I'm just kidding. If you listen to this show, I'm all about boxes. Well,
1: it didn't come in a box. <laughs> oh i know no this uh it came in a bag with a little cardboard header stapling the bag shut but it was all in pieces in the bag so this is you had to take it out of the bag to assemble the figure in the first place it wouldn't display very well if you kept packaged because it would just be a jumble of parts but i but i do have a big glass china cabinet like a seven foot tall glass fronted cabinet in my living room that i display most of my godzilla stuff in it is displayed in a box technically i suppose
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Does that does that glass china cabinet have a lock
1: on it? Uh, no. But my kids are old enough to not mess with that stuff, and the dog can't figure out how to get it open. So,
0: oh <laughs> well, no, I'm just trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out if it's locked up or not. I, you know, I'm not the biggest Godzilla fan, but uh, Brian Clark, what's your address? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh damn, I tried.
2: Well, I feel like a lot of people outside of the super Godzilla fans are not going to know who Shin Godzilla is. So that wouldn't be the first one they'd go for anyway. Right. That would be not like the first figure they grab, you know, they grab everything else before that. It'd probably
0: be safe. Jason, do you have any Godzilla things in your board list today?
3: Well, not in my list today, but I do have a Godzilla NECA figure, which I'm sure pales in comparison to that, (laughs) you know, in price and quality good enough for me so what i got of course um everything's kind of tied together it's all john carpenter related who we've already kind of talked about earlier three of the things are halloween related of course so i finally got my fog figure in
0: get the fuck out of here halloween related you right right
3: weird i finally got my fog figure in You made me nervous last week by saying like (laughs) you think it might be lost i'm like oh shit (laughs) <laughs> but then it finally showed up and it's beautiful. I love it. It's amazing. So just a couple things here. I bought uh, a pre-order and I think it was back January of 2022. Uh, Mezco 112 scale, Michael Myers, Halloween two figure. I got it from big bad toy store and it finally came in and finally shipped to me a year and a half later. Should have been like Clint will be proud. It's still in the bag, in the box. So I can't even like really show it to you yet. But I will open it. I have the Halloween 1 version opened up in my cabinet behind me. I will open this eventually. One other thing that I bought was kind of tied to some news that we had uh, some episodes ago. But there's a Halloween 2 Kickstarter game coming out through Stop the Killer.
0: I was wondering if you spent money on that yet.
3: What's kind of cool. I, did, I This is my first time I've done anything with Kickstarter. But I did pre-order this. I don't have it yet, of course, because it's not out yet you could buy one game for $60 or two for 100 And what was kind of cool is you can change what you buy before they ship it. So I'm thinking about now upping it to the two games so I can kind of open one and keep one sealed, make Clint proud and still get the satisfaction of opening it. That Kickstarter game, it's live right now. So go get in on it. I think there's little over two weeks left, so if you listen to this on release date, there's probably only a few days left, so go check that out. And it has reached all of its stretch goals, so all the added stuff will be added into the game.
0: Yeah, I think it reached most of them, like, after... It wasn't even 48 hours. There was, only, there was only a few. And what's cool about Stop the Killer is um, I did the same thing. I bought two uh, with uh, My Bloody Valentine one, and one I kept so I could have in the collection. The other one I bought so I could open it and play it. And then you can get all the expansion packs and add-ons and stuff. But what's cool about that is, like you said, you can edit your order actually up through the shipping so like let's say the campaign ends tomorrow and it's still a a month before it ships which it's actually longer than that just for example you can get in there and change and edit things up to that point too
3: oh nice good to know
0: you could with my bloody valentine
3: that's what i got who's next brian
0: now we got something to play when i come over in september Hmm.
3: yes oh hopefully i have it by then i should have looked to see when it officially comes out but i think it's it's right around there i'll probably lose (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: <laughs> do we all lose if we win that makes the game no fun because don't you want michael to win
0: i don't know uh when you when you win or lose just come meet up with me and brian we're gonna be you know in the back <laughs> with pigeons stroking pigeons yeah. <laughs> so my first
2: thing i didn't have anything like the other day i was like shit i have nothing my vinegar or not my vinegar syndrome my terror Vision movies shipped so this month they released i don't even know how to say this uh, it's some Korean movie, I believe it is. Shrigala. It's a knockoff of Friday the Thirteenth, and it's a foreign film. It sounds fun. And then Cube, which is a Japanese movie. Yeah. No,
1: that's a Canadian movie. I need to. I need to pick. Yeah, I love that movie. Unless it's a different Cube, the one where the people are stuck in the cube prison that keeps reconfiguring itself. That's a different Cube. Oh, I'm not familiar with the Japanese one. Yeah, this is this is
2: Japanese.
1: That's cool. I didn't have to check that one out too. You
2: know, Nineteen ninety-seven. Again, a, a, another name I can't say. But maybe yeah. a remake
1: or something. I think
2: it's same premise, but it's Japanese instead of. And then Welcome to Hell, which looks interesting. Death metal, satanistic cult movie.
1: Now you're speaking my language. I'm definitely gonna have to pick that one up. <laughs> right up my
0: fucking alley. Woo! Yeah.
2: I signed up for another year of movies from Terrorvision, so I had to drop a thousand dollars to get their next fifty releases. But they're just doing a lot of stuff that I had no idea existed. What else did I get? Here, let's see.
1: Isn't that funny? About a new movie will come out, like a like a for example, a Marvel movie or a you know some big studio thing that we all see. We can go to the theater and see it. You really like it. Comes out on video, and you're like, eh, I don't know if I need to buy that Blu-ray or not. It's it's you know twenty five bucks, whatever. And then we'll spend piles and piles of money for sight unseen movies we've never heard of before <laughs> these special editions with six hours of extra features and all this stuff oh it's 35 for the the 4k of this horrible movie that was shot on 16 millimeter film in somebody's basement sure i'll, I'll spend the money and take a chance on that it's almost certainly going to be awful and i'll never watch it again but what the hell
2: Someday I'm going to retire from my job, and I'm not going to have anything to do but
1: watch movies. That's that's a good way to put it. We're saving for the future. That's the excuse I'm going to use from now on.
0: <laughs> Brian, listening to your description, I just got to ask, I didn't know that they released Demon- Demoniacs on 4K. <laughs> well, not yet, but
1: UK studio called Indicator <laughs> has been putting Roland's movies out on 4K, and I've got all four of them, so, so I'm sure they'll get to Demoniacs eventually.
2: Uh, the 4K... <laughs> A clown edition. (laughs) (laughs) So I ordered a Joe Bob cup the other day. They had a new shirt drop and they had a cup. So I ordered that. Jason has some of these cups from uh, Fright Rags. So I ordered a Joe Bob. And somebody at Fright Rags understood the assignment. There's a Cheddar Goblin sticker and there's a Halloween 3 card in the box. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. Joe Bob and Darcy fight about showing Halloween 3 and he has the I don't know that he hates the movie or he just likes to bust her balls but I was like that's pretty funny that a Halloween 3 card came with the cup. And here's my last thing. I went to Ghoulish Mortals couple weeks ago in, in St. Charles, Illinois, it's a horror theme store. We know them because they vend it um Flashback every year. They've been open for five years, I think. Cool story. I'm in there, and the lady's like, I'm talking to the lady, and Jack's playing the Godzilla pinball machine. All the pinball machines are free. They have four of them, so we're going around the store. We're looking at stuff. We're playing the pinball machines, and the lady's like, do you know who this actor is? He was just in here. I didn't know who he was, and he was kind of surprised, and I'm looking at him, and I'm like, I, he's in Rob Zombie movies, but I, I can't think of his name. You know, I'm thinking for a little bit longer, a little bit longer, and uh, she's like, he played Herman Munster in The Munsters, and I was like, well, yeah, but he was in Makeup. I, after that, I was like, oh, it's Jeff Daniel Field. and She's like, yeah, he was here. His brother lives in the area. He was visiting, and she's like, you just missed him. He was just here not too long ago. I'm like, son of a bitch. I guess they had talked about maybe some signings or stuff in the future. And I was like, definitely get a hold of us and let us know because that's only like a two and a half hour drive for me. And my son lives there, so I would definitely try to get up there for it. I bought Tiffany and Finley a print, Jack bought some prints, and I bought this print, Mothra. So we'll we'll share this on the social medias, but it was just too beautiful to pass up. Vibrant colors. Mythica's Monsters. She had some other stuff. She's working on some more Godzilla stuff, so I was like, oh, it gives me something to buy next time. I can buy a, you know, Ultraman or Godzilla or whoever else she puts out. I think there was a King Ghidorah and a Rodan that she had worked on that I can add to my collection for my next
1: trip to Ghoulish Mortals. Come down and visit and check this store out. It sounds awesome.
0: Do they produce those prints themselves, or are they, they brought in? or More than anything, just tons of
2: artwork. Just... In sections, like this artist would be this part. And, uh, they had Universal Monsters had a whole section. And then, like anything, Beetlejuice and The Simpsons and Cryptids and Friday the 13th. And as you go through, there's all this stuff, and it's just different artists. Um, they had a Halloween pinball in the basement, and they had a bunch of Halloween and serial killer artwork around it you could buy that artists had put brought in to sell. And you know, we've talked about this before at conventions. I'm going more anymore to see who's got great artwork I can put up, not so much for the celebrities. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to buy this. And Finley's room's kind of becoming the Godzilla poster room. I'm going to put it up in her room because this is Return of the Living Dead and Joe Bob in
0: here. That's pretty cool because anymore, a lot of your Halloween horror shops are always fun to visit, not knocking any of them. I love all of them, but uh, typically you go and it's your NECA and your Fright Rags, which is all great stuff, too. But so it's it's cool that they're highlighting, you know, different. I don't even say local because they're probably from all over the place, but independent artists. That's awesome.
2: I don't know that I saw a NECA figure in the place. I mean, it was all like patches and stickers and artwork and little trinkets and just videotapes, like old videotapes that had been refurbished with like movies on it and just all kinds of odd stuff that you wouldn't find it a walmart or a target or something like that in the horror section so i'll definitely go back and they were um, expanding two parts of it so there's more to come and free pinball i mean Jack stood there for like half hour i'm like we gotta go like i want to go to the record store we went down to the record store and i'll show those on the next one so i don't take up too much time but i picked up some horror records at that shop it was a good day
0: That Halloween pinball machine from Spooky Pinball Empire, whatever it is, was free? I'd still fucking be there. You'd have to be dragging me out.
2: Yeah, they had Alien, Stranger Things, Halloween, and Godzilla. All free. I was like, how much is this? And she's like, it's on free play. You just play it. Man, I could spend all day here.
0: I'd wind up having to wash dishes in the back, even though they don't serve food.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You can watch penball
0: machines. I got a few things to show this time. I've been super duper. I can't buy a damn thing poor lately. This one right here real quick. I forgot to mention back on Mother's Day, uh, I took the ex-girlfriend and the former bonus daughter and my two daughters. We went uh, back to Weird Soul Records. Uh, the ex-girlfriend still hangs out with the kids and does, does stuff for them, and they have a great relationship. So I'm like, hey, it's Mother's Day. We're going to celebrate it. So we went up there, had some lunch, and then um, stopped at Weird Soul Records. On my dime, everybody bought a record. <clears throat> And then I, for myself, picked up the twang o I don't know why it was just the cover art and not because there's two nude, skull-faced women on the front. I swear that wasn't what did it, but I just dig old kind of psychobilly, you know, sounds like this. So it was like probably the cheapest record that we picked up there. So I grabbed that, came home, uh, pleasantly surprised. It is kind of like if you're listening to the credits at the end of a Quentin Tarantino film, very kind of Pulp Fiction kind of wet sound to it all instrumental yeah i picked that up that was kind of fun been wanting to talk about that for a while but i keep forgetting was recently at screamer's costumes 25th celebration 25th anniversary with art the clown and little pale girl were there i went inside the store and they had a bunch of the uh neca bride of frankensteins that recently came out so grabbed myself a couple of those Still, uh, the, the curse of the NECA Frankenstein accessory pack follows me. They had some, but uh, by the time I got in, they were gone. That's a story within itself. That event was the day before Father's Day. So the day after that, Father's Day, I was gifted this beautiful piece right here. Again, sorry about the glare. So, Show it on the socials. But this is a sealed Frank Zappa Halloween 81 6-disc costume box set. Contains three full shows. And 78 unreleased tracks, all from um, October 31st, November 1st, 1981 at the Palladium in New York. Um, So there's some great music on here. And then it's got kind of a Frank Zappa as Dracula, old school plastic Halloween mask in there. We actually, when we went to Weirdsville Records, I saw that they had them there and I wanted it. But I was spending money on everybody else. I was like, ah, maybe some other time. I got it for Father's Day. What else? Oh, not a big deal, but... We've talked about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre video game coming out. Um it is on pre-order right now. If you order it now you can save 10%, so like 4 bucks. Uh, the game comes out August 18th. I went ahead and dropped the money on that. Cool thing about that is that game when those games come out, they're usually 70, 80, you know, 60, 70, 80 bucks. This is only like $40 and then you get 4 bucks off, so pre-order now if you want to get it a little bit cheaper. That's it. That's why I'm poor. That's all there is. I'm sad that there's not more. I know how we can maybe get to some more Maybe if we take it to a sponsor and get some money for the show.
1: So, you want to visit a haunted house? Hmm, I think I have one that should suit you. That is, if you dare follow me. Ah, uh, here we are at the door. Happy haunting. <laughs>
0: Hey Haunters, Clint here from the I Like It Spooky Horror Podcast. As a former haunted attraction owner, I know firsthand how expensive mass advertising can be. If you are looking for an alternative way to advertise directly to your target audience, look no further than the I Like It Spooky Horror Podcast. Simply email us at ilikeitspookypod at gmail.com and we will get back to you with info about our affordable rates. Now that we've heard from our sponsor, we would like to welcome to the Spooky Studio columnist, author, Godzilla expert, and unique cinema connoisseur, Brian Clark. Uh.
1: That's a unique cinema connoisseur. That's one way to put it. Thank you. you. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, we're glad you're here too. Um, I'm not 100% sure if we're glad with the movie that you chose, but we'll get into that in just
1: a little bit. Uh-oh. Yeah, I I wondered about that.
0: Speaking of that, Brian, you're going to hang out with us here in just a little bit continue to hang out with us and discuss a film that you picked for us to watch, but first we want to we want our audience to get to know you a little bit if they already don't. And I kind of just want to jump right in with uh with your time at Scream Magazine. So you write for Scream Magazine. Is this a a continuing thing or was it a one shot or
1: Uh no, it, it's an ongoing thing. I've written for them for Wow. A little over two years now, I guess. Um, That came about through our mutual friend, Justin Beam, was on Attack of the Killer podcast when I started on that show, or he was coming back for a few guest spots, at least. And uh, we got to be friends through that. And he introduced me to the editor, basically started an email thread with me and Rich, the editor, and said, hey, this is Brian, that guy I was telling you about. Okay, bye. And then just deleted himself from the (laughs) the chain and left us to it. But so I wrote a uh, a sample piece on Son of Kong, and they wound up going ahead and and publishing that one. And then he, Rich, the editor, sent me a list of movies that they wanted covered. And I just plowed through all that. And they've got quite a few on deck for me yet. Um, And they publish every other month. So it takes a little while to dig through the slush pile there and get everything. Uh, They don't publish in order they get them. So I've got I don't know, probably another year's worth of articles in the can for them already. But yeah, we're uh, we're talking about continuing that. I'll probably keep writing for them. It's it's a lot of fun. Good magazine, good environment. Rich is a lot of fun to talk to and, and a great editor to work with. He's got good suggestions.
0: With your writing for them, do they, so you said they give you a list. Do they give you a list and then can you pick and choose? Or are you basically like, here, this is what we want you to do, do
1: it. So now that I'm through the, the initial list, which I'm not even sure he expected me to do the entire list, <laughs> but I did anyway. Mike is like that, I guess. Um, And uh, so now we're discussing other movies that I can bring to the table, ideas for articles and things. But yeah, they they take pitches and stuff, too. It's not just a, here, this is what we want you to write, now write it. That's how it started off.
0: Through writing with them, you were able to recently interview John Carpenter, which I'm sure was an amazing experience.
1: I've done another interview that still hasn't come out. Uh, for them, too, with uh, Nick Maley, the creator of Yoda from The Empire Strikes Back, that we were talking about Life Force with him. For the John Carpenter one, Vampires was just on the list. And I thought, well... I love that movie. I do, too. It's It's, I think, one of his most underappreciated movies. I don't want to say, like under scene or anything like that. But like it it, it always kind of gets thrown on the heap with his later, not as good, shall we say stuff. And I don't think it deserves to be there. I think it's fantastic. So I was, I was looking for some quotes and things on it. And again, Justin beam, I was talking to him and he goes, why don't you just see if you can talk to John and sent me his PR guys email. And I was like, yeah, all right, why not? So I just, that's everyone's like, how did you get to interview John Carpenter? And the answer is I asked, (laughs) It was as easy as that. And he was extremely sweet. And, you know, that he's got kind of a reputation for being an old grump at conventions and stuff sometimes. And the interview could have gone better. That is on me. Um, there were some technical difficulties and I was afraid he was going to get impatient. Tell me to kick rocks basically but he was very patient through the whole thing he was really funny really nice we wound up i think talking about john wayne and john ford movies more than we talked about vampires but it was a cool conversation
0: one of the things i like about interviews i've seen with john carpenter is yeah like you say it's very laid back he's i I think a lot of us hold him especially jason here hold him up on a pedestal just because of his contribution to cinema and then whenever I see people talk to him, he's just, you know, talks like a damn sailor. Very, very layman. Very cool. So speaking of inter- speaking of interviewing celebrities, Spooky Brian here tells me, I don't know if this was an interview, but that you once met, I'm gonna screw his name up, but Jorg Bagretti, the director of Necromantic, a film that I think we all love. how, how did that come about?
1: York Bootgret, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, <Thank you. laughs> I uh, of all it was in all uh, of all places in Tokyo. Um, I, th- I think I've told this story on Attack of the Killer podcast before, so uh, apologies if I'm repeating myself for some of your listeners. But I uh, I ran into him at Godzilla's 65th anniversary celebration uh, in downtown Tokyo. I was there with a group of friends who were uh, had all gone for the this Godzilla thing, and we were walking around, and this really tall. Blonde dude comes up to me, assuming he saw a fellow English speaker, um, and asked me where I could get or where he could find tickets for a certain thing. And I said, I don't know. I'm sorry, man. So we, we parted ways. But the whole rest of the day, it was just eating away at the back of my head like, who is that guy? God, he looks familiar. And one of my friends who was there with me is also a fellow hardcore horror nerd. So we were walking around together talking about, it's like, I saw this guy and it's bugging me. So we spotted him again. And then it clicked and I nudged him like, Andrew, look, look, that's fucking York Boudreaux, the director of Necromantic here to hang out and look at Godzilla stuff. Cause he's a huge Kaiju nerd too. So he was actually there covering the festivities for, uh, I think he's at a German radio station, but he's written several books on Kaiju uh, in German. He's basically like the leading german language expert on godzilla and other kaiju movies
0: speaking of godzilla i'm glad that you actually agreed to be on the show after all the i know it was they're fun digs but they could be seen as personal attacks i'm always ribbing you and a ribbon spooky brian about cryptids and godzilla
1: yeah well i i had to swallow my pride and my principles and show up here anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we appreciate it, especially with your beautiful uh, radio voice here, gracing us with that. Oh, thank you. I want to get to some Godzilla stuff in just a minute, but first, uh, so back to the writing, you recently put out a novel, Putting the Ground to Sleep and Other Weird Tales. Uh, Spooky Brian, he bought one. He can't read. He probably won't read it, but he wanted to support you, and he bought it.
1: Yeah, hey, I appreciate it.
0: So tell us a little bit about like that journey from like concept, to you know, throughout and now to publishing.
1: Uh, it's a collection of short stories. Three of them have been in print and other anthologies. Um, I've a writer, I, I don't know for, I've always been a storyteller, I guess. I remember getting an old typewriter at my grandma's one time and I'd just sit in front of it and hunt and peck, you know, to type little stories about dinosaurs or whatever. So it's just always been in my brain. So, um, I've got my first story published in 2014 and then it was a few years between that and the next one even you know, I'd been writing the whole time I had all these stories on my my hard drive but the submission process to send something to an anthology editor wait months and months and months to hear back if you hear back at all it's just such an arduous process to get you know you could have things that you wrote 10 years ago that still haven't been published yet and so and which was the case for me some of the stories in this book are, good 10 years old at least. And so I finally decided I'm just going to try to self-publish this and, and see what happens. I want all these stories off my hard drive and out of my brain. So I have a fresh slate to start writing new things and I can stop trying to find homes for these. Um, so I put it all together. I have a friend up in Minneapolis uh, who runs a great imprint called Weird Punk Books. He does the, the interior layout formatting as a freelance thing. So I had him do the formatting for me. I uh, I reached out to a guy named Jolien Yates, who that name might be familiar to some of you physical media collectors out there. He's, uh, he's done work for Arrow Video. He's done work for Mondo Macabro, uh, doing cover art for Blu-rays and uh, art for the interior materials, you know, the booklet covers and things like that. And uh, he did a fantastic job. I told him I wanted something that looked like a 70s, you know, paperback from hell type thing that you would find digging through the piles in, a, in the horror section in a used bookstore and he just absolutely knocked that out of the park. So I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out um, and just self-published it through Amazon. So if you go on Amazon.com, you can find Putting the Ground to Sleep. I have a little author page there. And I always have to point this out because I think it's so, so goddamn funny. Uh, our friend Tad Good pointed this out to me, that there is another Brian Clark, also spelled with a Y, who writes uh, gay erotic fiction, who you can find... <laughs> On Amazon as well. So if you're looking, if that's your thing, that's absolutely cool. More power to you. But if you're looking for my stories, that's not the one.
0: You sure? And you just forgot to give them your your stage name. What, are the, what do they call that? A pseudonym or
1: pseudonym? Yeah. Well, honestly, his stories are probably outselling mine by orders of magnitude. So <laughs> I kind of wish that was me because he's probably making a living at it.
0: Uh, you said that people can pick that book up at amazon.com, but I think you also, it's in some, it's in physical stores in some places also, right?
1: There are two comic book shops here in Mason City, uh, where I'm from, and they are both carrying it. And then there is a store that is just my favorite place in the whole world. It's called Dreamhaven Books and Comics, and that's up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it is it, I'm just going to plug them. I'm not, I don't work for them. I promise. But if you're ever in Minneapolis, you have to check out Dreamhaven. It's just an amazing store full of all these cool old pieces of memorabilia and, and horror and sci-fi literature collectibles. It's a fantastic store. And Greg, the owner, he's super cool. It's a lot of fun there.
0: I, I want to touch on, on something you kind of brought up just a minute ago to maybe hit home, uh, to young, inspiring writers. And I agree with you because I, I used to write screenplays and, um, I still do, but I don't really do anything with them. It's very daunting. And so for a, a, a young unpublished writer coming out and you have all these great ideas you want to get on a paper, you can almost be scared away because it's like, okay, now what do I do with it? The assumption that you have to have an agent and you have to have connections. And it's kind of like, you know, so it's, it's very hard to get started, but it sounds uh, like if you had a message to young writers, I kind of heard it in what you were saying to just keep pushing it and just ask and just, you know, get the stuff done.
1: Yeah, the people who are still out there writing, the ones who just never gave up, don't don't get discouraged. I, I was talking to uh, Andrew, the friend who I met Jörg Bukert with in Tokyo. He's in a death metal band, well, several death metal bands, and he's wanting to break into creative writing. In fact, he just had his first short story published uh, a couple of months ago. I was talking to him about it one night because he's used to, you know, like you record a demo, you send it to a label, and usually that process is, at least in the musical channels that he travels in it's a little more streamlined he's he's had a lot of success and it he was unused to the idea of having to send all of these manuscripts out to all these different publishers and then just sit there and never hear back from them he's like this sounds awful i said yeah it, it is i don't know why i chose to do this to myself but writing stories that's the creative worm that's in my brain you know some people it's music some people it's filmmaking but whatever it is, it's always in you. It's, you know, people ask what I do. It's like, well, I work in a factory for a living, but that doesn't matter because that's not who I am. I'm a writer and I always, you know, someday I'll retire from my job. I will probably never retire from telling stories just because that's what's in my brain. That's how it works. It just will keep churning these ideas out. But, uh, yeah, just keep, keep writing. Don't give up. Don't let those rejection notices scare you off because, Hey, if somebody even actually bothers to have the courtesy to send you a rejection notice rather than just ghosting you, you're coming out ahead of the pack as far as as far as that goes. But um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of rejections before you get a yes. And that's what's great about the world of self-publishing. Now anyone can get their voice heard. The downside to that is you don't get an editor. So you know things that will be streamlined in the publishing process with an editor giving you suggestions and things that's that's missing. So just have confidence in your voice, check your punctuation, <laughs> and good luck. Proofread by all means, proofread. Yes, proofread. Yes.
0: No, you're you're right. Like a quote-unquote rejection in the form of a, a communication is great. Uh, years ago, a, a screenplay I shopped around at a certain production company out in Hollywood. And this one production company wrote me a letter back and they were like, it basically trashed it. You know, it was like, no, don't do this. This is too juvenile, yada, yada, yada. I still have it framed. And I look at it and like, they got back to me. You know, this is fantastic. They cared enough to give a shit to give me some criticism.
1: The ones that will give you notes are awesome. Even if sometimes their notes are a little assholey, they can still be helpful.
0: Yeah, because when you uh, like you say when you when you languish in the the laps of response, I recently submitted a, a drabble to the George A. Romero Foundation for uh, they're doing a a podcast series like old time radio stuff called The Dead, and they had a wide submission for anybody, and I wrote what I thought was a fantastic story, and it's been months I haven't heard a word, and it's just I just want to write them like just tell me something, get back to me, what the hell's going on, you know? So, speaking of uh, screenplays, you obviously have a deep love for cinema. Have you ever thought about writing screenplays, or, or have you, and, and I'm not aware of uh, I
1: have. In fact, I have written a couple. One never really quite got finished. One, a buddy of mine and I did a an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft, The Hound. Uh, we, were, we had sent it to a film company that was, at the time, up and coming, and I don't know if anything ever happened with them or not, because it was like 15 years ago. Sent it to a film company in Australia that was looking to start up and looking for scripts, and we actually got some notes back on it, and then just... For one reason or another, the whole thing kind of fell apart, but but yeah, I'd love to get back to screenwriting. The, The thing that stands in my way is laziness. I can't stand formatting that kind of thing myself in like a Microsoft document and the software that formats it for you is expensive so i've kind of fallen out of it but uh but yeah that's something i would definitely love to get back to because i've got quite a few ideas that would be good as screenplays rather than stories
0: i might i might have something for you we'll uh we'll talk after the show <laughs> okay mom's the word on top of that i noticed that you um you know as if you're not busy enough you you find time or i, th- I think you did because the data last date i saw was 2020 but um for cinema socialist apocalypse blogspot.com what's What's that all about?
1: Cinemasochist Apocalypse. Yeah, that I haven't Thank touched you. that. And it's probably dead at this point. I don't know if I'll ever come back to it. That was iteration number. I don't know how many of uh, my friends and I have been writing movie reviews online since we were 17, I think junior, senior year of high school discovering, at the time, what was known as the Bee Masters Cabal. I think they still, uh, a few of them are still functioning, which were like the the old heads of online movie review websites long before there was such a thing as uh, Harry Knowles or uh, one of the guys on uh, Red Letter Media. You know, these were uh, the Bad Movie Report. 1,000 Misspent Hours, which is still going. That's uh, my friend El Santo. His writing is what mine wants to be when it grows up. I've been saying that for Years, this movie reviews are phenomenal. But so we were inspired. Oh, anyone can just again back to the self publishing. Anybody can just write about movies on the internet. Okay, and of course it starts out a bunch of snarky teenagers wanting to sound like Mystery Science Theater, and in the process completely failing to understand that Mystery Science Theater works best when it punches up, not down, and just you know sh- shitting on bad movies. I in air quotes there, uh, but you know, as you mature as a writer, it's like, well, this is kind of boring, just making all these dumb jokes. Let's learn something and pass that knowledge on to the to the reader. So I got a lot more interested in um, the behind-the-scenes stories, you know, trying to find interviews, trying to find anecdotes from the set, production information, that kind of thing. That, I guess, is path that led me to, to be writing for Scream today, because that's, that's how I, I look at my writing for them is wanting it to be informative so i'll dig through you know newspapers.com and archive.org and find old old magazines old newspapers interviews with stars because I, I think i kind of got plugged as the old movies guy at scream because i think the most recent movie i was ever assigned to write about for them was like 30 some years old at this point <laughs> But yeah, most of the stuff I've written about for them is like classic Universal Monsters and you know stuff from the 40s. Yeah, but anyway, I, I kind of gave up on cinema. Sorry, I, that, I forgot what we even started talking about there. <laughs> Such a rambling answer. But yeah, I, I haven't touched Cinemasochist because writing for Scream kind of ate up the time that I had to write those types of articles for myself. I still have a few ideas. If I can't shop them around to other magazines, I might post there at some point. But yeah, I think that's iteration of my writing is past its expiration date at this point.
0: Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with being uh, pegged as the old old movie man or whatever, just because in today's day and age, something comes out. And of course, now we have the internet, this useful tool that we have, the internet. And so just everybody can instantly know about it. But there is just a labyrinth of films from, like you said, the 40s up through probably the, you know, the 90s when the internet exploded that a lot of people just don't even know about. You really got to scratch below the surface. And without curators like yourselves, they're just gonna die so it's it's cool that you are pegged that and can bring stuff like that to light
1: yeah well i'm kind of an omnivore when it comes to horror i don't only like slashers or monsters or exploitation because growing up my parents are fairly conservative and didn't let me watch r-rated movies as a kid but they remembered watching you know lon chaney and the wolfman Uh, when they were kids. So like, oh, clearly this is safe. This is okay. And that also is where a lot of the love of Godzilla comes from. Because like, oh, he wants to watch monsters. He can't watch aliens, but this is just a dinosaur. This is fine. (laughs) So I grew up feeding my desire for scary things and foggy graveyards and creatures that go bump in the night with all of these classic movies. And then as I got older and was able to get a hold of the other stuff for myself, got into that. And so, yeah, I, I love all of it.
0: Which leads us uh, again here in a little bit to rapey French pirates, but we'll, we'll get to that again in a second. Uh, just to assure you uh, when I, the blog, the blog spot still running, Again, when I was doing some research on you to you know for this interview, I found it on your Facebook page—a link to your Facebook page—and uh, like I say, I think the last thing was from 2020, if I remember right. But then on the right-hand side, it looked like a, a current, ongoing list of, like you say, like uh, just people chiming in with movie reviews and stuff. I believe.
1: Yeah, the the link tree is still there. The the blog is still active. I haven't deleted it or anything. It's just hasn't—it's not not getting updated anymore. I don't like to. I mean, unless there's something just horrifically embarrassing on there that I've forgotten about, which there probably is. I don't necessarily feel the need to wipe it away from history. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it's not like I'm embarrassed by it or anything. It's a piece of my writing history. It's a piece of, of my growth that you can see development from the oldest posts to the more recent ones, you know, some sort of evolution or, or improvement. So yeah, it's, it's, it's an artifact, I guess.
0: You, uh, you brought up Godzilla uh, again and I want to get to that. So I know you're a fan of cryptids. Um, but the word on the street is that you are a quote unquote Godzilla expert, uh, in that you've been a part of panels at G Fest in Chicago.
1: Okay. I would, I don't know who's calling me an expert, but they need to stop cause I'm not, <laughs> it wasn't me. I promise. I didn't, I don't call myself an expert in anything. Yeah. I did one, one panel at G Fest and, uh, it was kind of a disaster. <laughs> Because it was four people on the panel, and it was about horror and kaiju film. That was what it was supposed to be. And so each of the panelists was supposed to pick two or three movies, do a little presentation, a little write-up on them. And only two of the four panelists actually did the homework. So about halfway through the panel, it fell off a cliff. (laughs) So anyone who was there watching is certainly not going to call me an expert. Uh, (laughs) But I I do love me some Godzilla, yeah. Let's go with aficionado. How's that? Is that better? That works. I like aficionado. Yeah, that's definitely true.
0: Showing my ignorance about Godzilla and that whole world and um, about G-Fest. So when you're at those conventions, is there a, a language barrier You know that, that exists between having an event like that in the States? The panels,
1: aside from the interview panels for whatever celebrity guests they get to come from Japan, it's just mostly attendees from the U S there might be a few people who fly in from other places for it, but, but no, the, the panel is very much like any horror or the panel, excuse me, the convention is very much like any horror convention. You go to like a crypticon or something like that, where there's a a huge, huge vendor room full of the most obscenely expensive collectibles known to man. (laughs) And most of the panels are done by convention goers who pitch the panel like me, you know, I, I'm not, involved with g Fest in any way it was just me and this this other fella not people who are necessarily associated with the convention or are part of the staff or anything like that like the panel i was on just myself and a friend um pitched it and then got these other two guys on board show up with your visual aids and your your uh, notes and and go from there but the they usually have an interpreter who can talk with the with the japanese guests and, and do their interview panels and then if if anything the language barrier is actually kind of an advantage when it comes to the autograph lines because you can't stop and have a long awkward conversation with your favorite celebrity most of the time sometimes you can But for the most part, it's just you get your thing signed, you smile, you take a photo and you move on. And it it saves people like me with some social anxiety from having to try to come up with something clever to say to this person that you are a big fan of. You can just walk up and say, hi, here's my thing to sign and be done with it.
0: That makes sense. I never thought about an interpreter, but I was going to say I know Days of the Dead does a a Godzilla specific convention. I think it's Chicago. And yeah, I always see just everybody smiling and tons of pictures. And I'm like, I wonder if they can even understand each other. But now
1: I get it. Yeah, the All Monsters Attack is the Days of the Dead one. They they started it last year in Indianapolis, and then I think they're very much trying to muscle in on G-Fest's territory, because when they moved it to, not only did they move it to Chicago, where G-Fest has been for the last two decades or something like that, uh, they moved it into G-Fest's old hotel <laughs> and had it just a couple of months before G-Fest, which is coming up in just a couple of weeks now so yeah they're they're definitely trying to muscle in on that but I think most of the old heads are still at G fest as far as the the panels and the the informative aspect of it from my understanding all monsters attack is still basically just an autograph show they don't have much in the way of informational panels it's just toys and, and signatures
0: throughout this interview so far we obviously have gotten to know that you are a diverse writer you are the old man movie guy. You are not a Godzilla expert, but an aficionado. Uh, I got one last question, and that is, with your love for Godzilla encrypteds and your passion for writing, are they ever going to melt? Are you ever going to write something
1: in that vein? For Godzilla, it would have to just be unpaid fan fiction because Toho is very litigious about people doing things with their IP that are not licensed so if if by some miracle someday a licensor of of godzilla literature like idw comics for example says hey this guy should write something for us probably i won't ever write a godzilla story uh cryptids on the other hand yes i've been very much wanting to do a story about the van meter visitor which is iowa's own homegrown cryptid from a little town down by des moines there was a uh, sort of alien pterodactyl like thing excuse me it bothers me when people say pterodactyl because that's not an actual pterosaur. And then I just said it. Pterodactylus is a thing. Now I'm getting pedantic about dinosaurs. I apologize. Anyway, an alien Pteranodon came out of a mineshaft and terrorized the small town of Van Meter back in the late 1800s for about a week and then disappeared. And they have a little festival for the monster every year in Van Meter. And, and (laughs) as the most perfect small town, Iowa thing, Uh, We went to the festival a couple of years ago and pulled up, and there's a little four-way intersection that's like the middle of the whole town. (laughs) And there was somebody standing in the middle of the intersection with a sign and some balloons. And as we pull up to the stop sign, she comes up to the door, and we roll the window down, and she goes, Are you here for the football game, the baby shower, or the monster? (laughs) All
0: (laughs) three! All three!
1: Just that's something that's kind of percolating in the back of my head. I'm a very slow writer. I don't tend to have an idea and then sit down and bang out the whole story in the afternoon. It's something where I'll have an idea and then it will just sort of fester in the back of my brain for months or sometimes even years before I get it put down on paper. But very long answer to a very simple question of yes, at some point I will write a cryptid story (laughs) or would like to anyway.
0: We look forward to it. And, And speaking of ideas... We are going to, in just a moment, discuss the idea that spawned this movie that we watched. Uh, but before we do that, uh, you know, we learned that Brian Clark is, again, an aficionado of Godzilla. And you know someone else who is full of aficionados? Our podcast network, the PFPN. So let's hear from them.
2: Now that we've heard from our podcast network, let's get to the movie. I forgot what year this was because there were so many boobies and rapes going on that that's all I paid attention to.
0: 1974. But all I have to say is this. Brian Clark, why the fuck could you not just pick a Godzilla movie?
1: <laughs> you know, when I messaged Brian the other day when I was watching them, or re-watching for me the movie. saying I can't wait to hear how much the other guys hate it. Not that I want them to, but just nobody ever seems to love Jean Rolland's movies the way I do. <laughs> and just once, I want to introduce somebody to his movies and just have them fall in love with them because I think they're so good. But Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> I, was, I was happy that this film was suggested because it turned me on to keep the Kino Cult app on Roku which I didn't know existed. And I'm browsing through the library of films and I'm like, okay, there looks like some interesting things here that I haven't been exposed to that I'll check out. So that part was really cool.
1: Yeah. The Kino cult's a fantastic app. They've got all kinds of great uh, exploitation movies from the sixties, seventies, eighties. they have other stuff too, but it's, it's a great resource for uh, people like me who love Eurosmut movies. (laughs) Not that I would necessarily categorize Ron's movies as that, or at least not this one despite the amount of boobies and rape, like you said. <laughs> um, but no, I, I I was trying to decide what to pick when Brian asked me to come on the show. I was like, do I wanna do something Japanese? Do I wanna do something really hardcore and nasty? Do I wanna like do I wanna torture them? And then I thought, well I'll hedge my bets and show them something I love on the chance that they'll love it too. But then if it fails, I'll have also tortured them, so
3: So, when I first heard that this was subtitled, I was like, oh shit, here we go. I don't like reading much. So, I was like, okay. So, I got into it and I was pleasantly surprised that there was a lot of long, extended scenes with not much dialogue in it. So, I was like, okay, I don't have to read so much. And I honestly didn't read every little part about it, so I'm still kind of confused on the story. But I think I got the gist of it.
0: No, I'm right there with you, Jason. I was apprehensive to watch it because of the subtitles. I'm not a fan of subtitles because I like to immerse myself, close myself off, immerse myself into the film, and pay attention to the the subtleties. And for me, subtitles take me away from being able to watch the things and hear the things in the background because I'm focused on trying to read. But no, I I was... uh, I was happy that there, the dialogue was limited.
1: Have we said what the movie is yet? <laughs>
0: no. I don't think it was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. we're afraid to. This is a great lead in
2: to the title. Yes. <laughs> Les Demonicus? Les Demonicus. Demoniacs. Demoniacs. Okay. Yeah. What you said.
3: <laughs> yeah, I was trying to look it up with my with my um, Alexa on the remote and I, I couldn't I couldn't pronounce it. I was like, it's like maniacs, but demon, de- demoniacs. Okay, now that you said it, I, I'm like, oh, okay, it makes sense. But I, I, I wish it would record what I said last night because I was saying all sorts of weird shit. And it kept <laughs> popping up with um Johnny Depp movies. I was like, what the hell is it? Is it <laughs> I don't know what it's picking up. So I had to go back to the old typing it in and searching the Kino app.
0: No, that, that's funny because when I first typed it in, for whatever reason, I must have hit the wrong key. And Animaniacs came up and I'm like, I know this, isn't it? You guys remember Animaniacs from when we were younger? Uh, the definition for Brian pronounced it better than I'm going to screw it up again, but, uh, demoniacs, demoniacs. If you look at the definition, it is just possessed people.
1: Yeah. There are a lot of subtleties to be immersed by in Roland's movies. Uh, visually. They're always very striking. He's the works of art. Uh, really. I know that saying things like, Oh, that's, it's dreamlike and it's like a a painting come to life or or such cliched things, but they're so true about Roland's movies. And that's largely because he was inspired by a lot of painters rather than filmmakers to start out with Uh, in his young life. His mother was a model for painters and photographers. And so he was always surrounded by that kind of creative energy. She had his father left very early on and she had affairs with many thinkers and artists, a lot of surrealists, including Georges Bataille, whose work, The Story of the Eye, Roland was actually trying to get made into a movie uh, right before he died. He he remembers Bataille reading him satirical, anti-church stories as bedtime stories when he was a very young child, so that might tell you something about some of the, the imagery you see in his movies.
0: Well, and I think I also read that he grew up in a seaside town, if I remember correctly, which was kind of what led him to want to do this uh,
1: pirate-type movie. Yeah, yeah. And there's a particular beach that he visited uh, often as a child that shows up in many of his movies. It's a a very sort of haunted-looking place, I guess. It's a it's a stone beach with these huge wooden pylons that used to be some sort of jetty or something, you know, extending hundreds of feet out into the water, and it's just this very... it's kind of an otherworldly-looking place. It has a strange vibe to it that really fits with, with his movies, with all these morose-looking French people wandering into the ocean to die or become vampires or... <laughs> <laughs> what have you, or, or be attacked by pirates. That's a different stretch of beach than the one that's used in this movie with all the shipwrecks, but
0: he definitely had an eye for, you know, natural locations. Uh, that was one thing I did enjoy about this film, especially kind of middle to the end of the film, which I guess we should kind of describe what's going on with the film. The two shipwrecked young girls who were raped by the, the wreckers, the bad pirates escaped and they kind of went into the countryside and they got to this, like, uh uh, just the, the the stone structures and everything um, were, were beautiful, and he framed those pretty well. So
1: that's something I, I love about European exploitation cinema, especially from this era that you know, over here, if you want to make a movie set in a, in a historical period or in some ruins in the United States, you have to either build a set or do it all on green screen, God forbid. Uh, but in Europe, this stuff's just laying around. <laughs> it's it's built in production value. You can just go film in actual ruins and your movie immediately has an air of authenticity that just cannot be recreated.
2: So, yeah, Clint, you had said talk about the premise of the movie. To me, the basic premise was there's this group of wreckers. They're not pirates. They cause ships to crash into the shore. They trick them somehow with a light, like from a lighthouse. Um, They're out, and they hear that a ship is wrecked. They go to collect the treasure from the ship. Two young girls wander from the wreckage. They rape them. They beat them and leave them for dead. The girls survive. They wander and find a clown. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is weird. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck's going on? And then they find a priest or just a guy that watches over a captive who happens to be Satan with one large-ass eyebrow. While this is all going on, the town is, you know, the Wreckers are going to drink in town and they there's these ghosts. There's this feeling of them being haunted by these girls the bar is really cool the lady that runs is it a bar is it i mean is it a flop house i don't
1: well a little of both in this time period bar taverns and and cat houses are pretty much the same thing but but with some really bizarre decorations yeah like an ape skeleton and a (laughs) just kind of whatever they had laying around a bat tacked up to the wall
2: So the lady that runs the house has a sixth sense or she can see the future or parts of the future or something. And she kind of knows what they've done and that these girls are going to come back and get revenge and a lot of nudity and rape and weird dancing and drinking and odd stuff on the walls ensues
0: well and, and one part about it i guess is important to convey is that yeah this is uh 17th century i believe you know it's, it's obviously in the past that kind of sets the, the time period brian i think spooky brian i think that uh your you laboring to kind of explain the story there kind of gets to one of my points is again i think the filmmaker was great at setting up shots and utilizing you know some of the natural surroundings and everything i don't feel sorry brian clark i don't feel that he was the best storyteller um because i think the story really gets muddled and contradicting and confusing and the the first thing i want to bring up about that is i wasn't a fan of the the opening where you got the headshots of the main cast and it's this is the captain he's a bad guy you know and this is the vixen. She kills people. I mean, good storytelling doesn't have to do that. You you can find that out on your own ten minutes into the film.
1: This is really the only one of his movies that does that. I'm I'm not sure what that was all about. Ron often shot a lot of ad libbed scenes from not super detailed scripts. Um, the story was always kind of secondary to the mood. For his movies, um, and that's if if you thought that was bad in this one, watch the Iron Rose sometime. That's just a ninety-minute long dream sequence, basically. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's interesting that you said the girls survive, but that's always kind of a question in the movie. Did they survive that initial rape? Because in some instances, it seems like they certainly did. They're still physically alive at the end of the movie until the end of the movie. But did the devil character they meet bring them back to life, or were they still corporeal when they got to him? Because shortly after they abandon their corpses on the beach, the captain goes back to the tavern to drink and begins seeing them all over the tavern. But is he really seeing their ghosts that have followed him to haunt him, or is this just piece of visual language to show us his attack of conscience because he feels bad about what they did to these innocent girls, even though he's killed who knows how many people up to this point. Maybe none of them have been defenseless girls
0: i took it as uh his subconscious manifesting in fact they even kind of alluded to that in the beginning that part i didn't like Where they're like he's the captain he's the bad guy he is haunted by his victims and so i actually loved that sequence again i thought it was kind of misleading because what i took from it was it it was at that point i thought they were dead and their ghosts were, were torturing him and then when i saw they were chasing them after that scene into the ship the graveyard, the ship graveyard, I'm like, okay, they're still alive. So that was just his subconscious eating away. He knows he's a bad
1: man. But even then, there's one point where, or several different points actually, where villagers or the tavern owner say that there have been ghosts seen walking around town. But then you could also refer to a person as, you know, a ghost of their former selves. So literal, is it figurative? But it's interesting that all of the villagers seem to know what is in those ruins. Like, they're aware that the devil is buried there because the, the madam, I think it is, says at one point, you know, these ghosts are heading through town out to this other island, and if they get there and release what's there, then we're all in trouble. So they, like, it's this very strange so, like, all these villagers are living with a satanic time bomb in their backyard, <laughs> like an unexploded landmine going, when is he going to come out? And then these girls are, are what unlocks it. And he, I don't know do we want to get right in, into the now, the, the relationship between the girls and the devil. He offers them a, a chance for revenge, but they have to sleep with him first. They have to let him out of the crypt and have sex with the devil. And for remember when I mentioned my friend El Santo and his 1,000 misspent hours, that his writing is what mine wants to be when it grows up. His phrasing for this particular sequence is so great. That the girls gain power when the devil fucks his infernal might into them.
0: (laughs) Wow. It's
1: always fun as a writer when you find a phrase that somebody else came up with that's like, God damn it, I wish I'd thought of that. And it's like, it makes you mad because it's so perfect.
0: I think kind of a good point that you're bringing up is maybe it depends on, on your mindset when you go into this film. I I kind of looked at this very literally. So like when you just talked about are they ghosts when the, the other people from the tavern saw them, I assumed it was a drunken sailor who saw two pale girls wearing, because they were wearing like white sheet bedclothes and just assumed they were ghosts because he was kind of a drunken wretch himself. But I think a good point you're bringing up, Brian, is... Is do you go into this literally or do you kind of have a, more of an open mind and try to figure out you know the, the figurative stuff that he was trying to get at? I tell you one thing that was super literal is speaking of the vixen. So there were there were four records, four pirates. You had the captain. You had kind of uh the brute. In fact, I think it was his name, brute. You kind of had the where's Waldo kind of flow with the you know go over, go with the flow guy, and then you had the vixen. And I tell you what, um, I'm, I'm probably gonna screw her name up too, but Jolelle Car- Carrier. She was. She was absolutely stunning, and not just because she was nude most of the film. I mean, it didn't hurt, but she was just absolutely beautiful.
1: Yeah, that's something, even if you don't like the movies themselves, you want to watch Jean, Jean Roland's movies just to see some of his starlets. But uh, I think of these pirates as they're kind of like the gang krugs gang from last house on the left if all three of the if if all three of the guys were krug yes and then the sadie character tina is like 10 times nastier than all three of them put together (laughs) because she is very much the you know the captain is in charge he's the bad guy but no, tina is the nasty one none of those three pirate dudes are half as scary as she is she is clearly the psycho of the bunch
0: I love that you brought that up, Last House on the Left, because that movie popped into my brain several times as I was watching this film. And I thought, this is like an earlier rendition of Last House on the Left, but as opposed to maybe a little more realistic and obviously not modern, it was a little more kind of fantasy. The rape scene in the beginning, when when they first accost the girls from the shipwreck, that was actually a bit uncomfortable. Um yeah, specifically between the, I call him the Where's Waldo goon. You know who I'm talking about. The Where's Waldo goon, he had the red hat on. Between him and the one
1: ship... Le Bosco.
0: Yeah, that was uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, it's surprisingly brutal. And there's not a lot of brutality in most of Roland's movies. There are in a few later ones, like Grapes of Death and Living Dead Girl have some pretty pretty striking gore in them. But for the most part, he, he wasn't that interested in showing violence. And there's a lot of sex in his movies, obviously, a lot of nudity, or, or at least attempts at eroticism, whether it turns you on or not, is <laughs> a different story. But but yeah, the he generally is lumped in with horror filmmakers, but I can't remember if it's Cinema Fantastique or Cinema du Fantastique. It's a way of referring to his movies. They're more fantasy, like you said. They're more eerie, gothic fairy tales than they are straight-up horror, which then makes something like that rape scene more jarring and more upsetting, like you said, because it's not like you're sitting down to watch a last house on the left where you're expecting that and you're kind of in that mindset. Whereas Roland puts you in this kind of dreamy, ethereal state, and then to have a really hard-edged, realistic thing like that dropped in the middle of it just makes it that much more uncomfortable.
0: I wonder if if one of the ways he achieved what you're talking about, again, this is The mechanics of just the physical interactions between the characters, not just the rape scenes, but even like when they were fighting or when they were just arguing, I thought the just the physical mechanics were really odd. You know, so you talked about when the girls slept with the devil, two girls are sleeping with the devil. So I wasn't expecting to watch porn. That's not what I was wanting to see it was really awkward. And you're kind of thinking, okay, this is the devil sleeping with these two chicks so they can have revenge. He can have their power um, or they can have his power, but he was like almost afraid to touch them in certain places. And it was almost like throughout the whole movie, I think that it would have benefited from having just a choreographer on set. But then again, Brian Clark, you mentioned too, that it kind of, I kind of think his filmmaking style is here's what we're going to do. Let's just see what happens.
1: Yeah. There's, there's definitely a lot of, of ad-libbing, uh, just of dialogue, but, just letting the actors kind of perform the scene how they want. And that tends to show up as far as the sex scene seeming badly choreographed. That is not unique to this movie or even his movies in general, but like Jess Franco movies are like that. Uh, a lot of, again, <laughs> I like the term Euro smut, but it also feels like it gives kind of the wrong impression. Like, you know, there's more to these movies than just being smutty. You think of Europe as the the more sexually liberated place, right? Where Movies like this from the States at the time, you know, we always shy away from nudity and, we yeah, we always shy away from sex and put in more violence, and Europe is the opposite. They tend to shy away from the violence and put in more sex. But then you watch movies like this with lots of sex scenes in them and they're all so stilted and awkward and it makes you wonder have any of these people ever actually had yes. sex or seen another person naked in front of them like what the fuck is going on here yeah i think it's just a i don't know if it's a stylistic choice or or what's going on there but yeah the sex in a lot of european sex movies that aren't actual porn looks very weird and unnatural
0: well, and it makes me wonder if it's just because I'm removed from that culture. But uh Brian, you mentioned before we were recording that we have a mutual friend in Brent Edget. And we have Brent Edget on uh, a couple of times, but a show we did a while back was about we called it shock cinema. And we were talking about that, about how sex is more liberated in Europe than it here it is here in the States. I'm starting to wonder if it's not that sex is more liberated over there, just nudity is more liberated. Because yeah, like like you say, the erotica, the erotica element in this film, it, it just it was almost vacant. And again, it was because like you say, it was so awkward between the people.
1: Of course. Then again, I don't think he intended for any of the nudity or sex in this movie to be erotic, to be arousing. I think, if you found, because the only time the sex isn't rough and miserable and awful is when they're having sex with the devil, actually. Essentially, you know, it's it's a rape revenge movie with no revenge and the devil is like a secondary good guy.
0: Right. Well, that's something else that was weird that I want to get to in a second. Um. The interaction between the captain and the Vixen, I can't remember her name, so I'll just call her the Vixen. In the beginning, there were, you know, they're obviously a couple. They shared a bedroom. There was a couple times between them where, again, I thought she was absolutely physically beautiful. But as I'm watching it, I'm just kind of like, this is awkward between these two. She's naked. I should be happy. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) So I noticed early on, and I think maybe you can answer this for me, but the the director, it looked like the director and or the editor had a hard time editing themselves. The scenes a lot of times were really extended, whether it was like someone walking down the beach and then it just kind of went on and on and on and you're just waiting for it to end. Is is that his style?
1: Yes, that is very common in all of his movies. Um, And I think that is part of what adds to that dream quality that I was talking about before, where it just... Sometimes the scene will just keep going to immerse you in the scenery or mood of what's going on in that particular part of the film. Um, It's like, uh, I don't know if you ever listened to uh, like a drone doom metal band like Sun or something like that, where it's just each riff lasts like an entire minute of the song. (laughs) It's just kind of put you in this hypnotic state almost.
0: Brian, Jason, did you guys notice that uh, after they chased the two girls... Into the shipwreck graveyard. They lit the one boat on fire to smoke them out. The vixen goes in after them because, like Brian Clark says, she's just insane and wants to kill everybody. No fear. She just hops in. She gets burnt. And she has some pretty severe burns on her face. And then the captain is, like, rubbing them with his hand. And I'm like, what are you doing? That's got to hurt her. And she's just, that was almost like a more erotic sex scene than some of this. (laughs) ah," And they're just rubbing each other's burns or whatever. And then, like, I'm assuming a day or two later, her burns were gone. They were just healed. No scars, no nothing. Look what happened when he was like, I'm
2: going to throw, give me your lantern. I'm going to throw it. And then he shoots it and it explodes. And I'm like this motherfucker at the beginning shot at them girls. And it seemed like he didn't hit them, but now he can throw a fucking lantern a hundred yards and hit it from there. I'm like, hey, what the fuck? Like, I was like, no, that doesn't make sense. But, I mean, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah, I watched this with my son, Jack, who's 16. I was like, eh, what the hell? We'll, we'll watch this together. And it was more enjoyable that way than it was just, I feel like, you guys watching it yourself. You know, I feel like this would be a movie that you, if you had a 20 friends and you put this on, you'd have a fucking blast with it. But I could see by yourself
0: it would be tedious and
3: I think you're absolutely right with that. Yep.
0: No, I agree too. Although I wasn't I wasn't going to watch this with my two daughters. It just wasn't no, no, <laughs> no, no.
1: So what what was Jack's reaction to it? At,
2: then? at the end he's like I don't really know what
1: happened. Well, exactly. That's what you're <laughs> supposed to be questioning through the whole thing.
2: Were they alive Were they dead? And I was like, "Well, I don't know either." Like the whole movie I was making him uncomfortable. I was like, "Look at that lady. She's re- How do you get an actress and you say, "Okay, we're going to film this movie." And you're going to be raped several times in the movie. And most of the movie, you're going to run around with just one boob hanging out of your clothes. This torn, lo- torn, torn loincloth. And she's like, OK, yeah, that sounds good. Oh, and you're going to sleep with the devil. He's got one eyebrow. Yeah. Wh- where do I sign up? There was that thing on the wall. that was like the lady and, it, you know, her legs were with open the
3: v- and- with the vagina. That was all big. And
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Jack. What if that's the ketchup dispenser? <laughs> 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 oh, and He's like, you're so disgusting. And then I was like, yeah, and brown mustard Jesus. is dispensed out of the back.
0: <laughs> there goes any female demographic we ever had. Gone. Oh, boy.
3: I should have drove to Gelsberg last night and watched it with him. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> and he said, I've never seen so many people have sex on rocks. I bet they had to go to the chiropractor after this
3: movie. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I was excited to come on here this morning so I can kind of find out what the movie was about. Uh, You know, I'm learning from you guys because I was so confused on a lot of them. Like when they're in the ruins, the twins or the two blonde girls are making the statues fall when they're getting attacked by Tina. The clown comes out of nowhere. The clown girl. I'm still super confused on the clown girl and the guy with the beard. (laughs) I assume they went back and they gave the power to her or them to make them survive, which made them kind of mortal again. That's how they were able to die.
1: I just want to see the reactions of any of your listeners who aren't familiar with this movie or Roland's movies in general. Because he has a thing for clowns that comes back in a lot of movies to where we're sitting here talking about pirates and the devil and... (laughs) and rape scenes and all this stuff and then every once in a while someone will say and then the clown shows up and i just want to see the looks on people's faces of what the fuck are they talking about why is there a clown
0: it was it was really jarring and when i first saw the clown i was like okay they just encountered ronald mcdonald out of nowhere for no reason and i thought this clown is the devil this clown is the evil entity that lives in these ruins that's what i thought based Based off the story that had been told to me so far up to that point. And then when I realized that the clown wasn't the devil, I'm like, what is the point of the clown? And then you get introduced to, I saw him written up somewhere as an exorcist. I viewed him as like a gatekeeper or a priest who was keeping the devil, this evil entity locked up. But they all actually seemed to be friends. And that's where I got really confused. Was the devil who ev- the, the town was afraid of wound up being the sympathetic person who wanted to save the life of the clown and the the per- his captor? I, I I got really confused at that point.
1: Yeah, I think the clown and the guy who looks like Jim Henson playing Rasputin are just <laughs> like the caretakers. Like I don't think they're guarding the devil. They seem to be hanging out and making sure he's okay stuck in that ruin because they talk to him and like you said they they're clearly friends so maybe they're there to keep the villagers from coming and again i think a lot of this stuff isn't meant to be terribly clear
0: yeah because i wonder if the director that the director was more of a in real life like anti-christian or whatever just because again the the tone of the devil and the clown and the caretaker are almost like they are the heroes they are the the good guys in this film and humanity is bad
1: yeah yeah i mean i don't know if if relan was necessarily um you know if he was a militant atheist or anything but he definitely had you know a, a different outlook on good and evil and, and especially considering the church because, like i said earlier um you know he, he grew up as a far five-year-old kid having this surrealist philosopher read him bedtime stories about priests turning into werewolves and eating children so he he definitely didn't think about the clergy uh in the way most people do yeah there
2: was very towards the end especially the all the statues they destroyed were religious statues mary and jesus and then when the girls lay down with the devil right outside the window is a religious statue there. I don't know who it was, you know, but there's a religious statue right there that's having to, in my view, watch as the devil turns these innocent girls to his side or whatever you want to say.
0: No, I thought that was interesting, too. And that's another reason why I thought maybe it was a statement from the director, because the the scene where the statues were the, the two girls who, you know, who were raped and Literally, in my sense, survived and then slept with the devil. Now they have these powers to go get their revenge. They show up to the bar and they just stand there and stare at everybody and get stabbed and don't do anything. And I'm like, they let everybody leave. And I'm like, how is this revenge? But yeah, then they go back to the ruins. The vixen chases them there. And they just immediately out of nowhere throw their hands up like Frankenstein and start dropping all these religious porcelain statues on them and the director made it a point to like i saw the the statue of mary get smashed in frame centered like twice and it was all this like destruction of the statue seemed to be the focal point of that scene and then it was kind of again back to the awkwardness is out of nowhere the statue of jesus lands on the vixen and she's struggling to get up from underneath the weight of it i'm like you could tell that she was acting that she was struggling to get out from underneath it it was it was weird how about the uh the noose. I'll, I'll jump back. The noose in the captain in the Vixen's bedroom. That was kind of <laughs> kinky on the wall. It was almost like the director's sensed the director's sense of kink was kind of, I don't know, uh, how about a noose? They like to choke each other, asphyxiation. But then she's trying to seduce the captain because he's all worked up and scared and worried. And she's like, hey, how about you just take your mind off it on me? And he, this is the the cringiest scene in this whole fucking movie. He grabs this like stuffed seagull that's sitting on the nightstand or whatever. And he starts stroking it and looking at her and he's getting into what she's doing. It was actually probably the most erotic scene of the whole movie. And just as he's about to like give into his, you know, carnal lust, he like the head off the, the stuffed uh, uh, pigeon and then goes back to his worried state. It was so <laughs> bizarre.
1: Hey, this being a European movie from this time period, just be glad he didn't do that to a live bird. <laughs> That is one thing that doesn't really seep into Roland's movies, thankfully, is is live animal violence. You'll get that every once in a while with a Jess Franco or something like that or a Paul Nashy. But
0: we get to the end of the movie. I, I, again, I don't know what's happening at this point. I'm really confused. And then out of nowhere, a bunch of clergymen show up, which is, you know, at least for Western philosophy, it's. The opposite of the devil, but they seem to be in league with the devil. And they're all just watching the pirates, the wreckers, rape these two girls again. They tie them up to boards in the sea, I'm assuming, so the tide will come in and they'll drown. And then they rape them again. And then it gets, again, more bizarre because the vixen, there's an extended scene where she's masturbating, soft porn style. Again, none of this is graphic. It's very suggestive. but And as she's masturbating, watching the, the pirates rape these girls again. There's like sound effects of like planes and explosions and all this stuff, which didn't fit into the time period, I thought. So, again, I thought that was kind of jarring. And then, like I said, the clergy shows up to just watch from the hill. I,
1: Some of the noises that happen during that scene are just like grunts and animal growls. And that made sense to me, and just, okay, they're behaving like animals. But then, yeah, like you said, there's gunshots and explosions. And I don't know if maybe that's just meant to evoke images of violence and war in the viewer's mind. Yeah, some of them are, like you said, sort of anachronistic, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. I think the clergy showing up at the very end is a sort of statement of, you know, the church is too little too late. Most of the time, they didn't really have any bearing on the events they just showed up not even to mop up after basically just to stand there and be ineffectual
0: i'll accept that i like that answer yeah
3: it made the captain you know kind of have a second thought about it too it looked like he knew that they were out there they were gonna drown they were tied up and it looked like he was snapped out of it and he wanted to go help them but it was kind of too late also and i don't know if that was because of the presence of the clergy there
1: the movie has kind of an interesting moral of the story i guess is about pacifism and that revenge isn't like i said before it's you know it's a rape revenge movie with no revenge where they get the power the literal power of the devil to take down the people who have wronged them and in the end, they can't bring themselves to use it. And, the, you know, the, the devil power came with a with a cutoff point. It's, you know, this works until dawn tomorrow or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, after that, the power reverts to me. So you have 24 hours in which to take your revenge using all the powers of hell at your command. And other than tipping some statues over they they don't really use it and at the very end there when they could have taken out all of the pirates they instead just let the powers lapse back to the devil and um, even though it results in them getting attacked and raped and murdered again evil ends up destroying itself anyway through what be it through lack of uh, or uh, through an attack of conscience or what like paul the kind of big galoot henchman, gets drunk out of this giant comedy liquor bottle. I don't know what the hell that thing was, I, but he, he drinks this enormous <laughs> fishbowl flask looking thing of full of booze and then tries to smash the girls with it to exercise them from his head, you know, to chase these ghosts away and winds up tripping and shattering the thing and cutting his own throat on it. And then the captain, after they kill the girls out on the boards that shipwreck, they tie them two out in the sea, winds up fondling Tina, thinking like, oh, he's getting all turned on by this. And then he chokes her to death and stabs Lobosco and then runs back out into the tide to try to rescue the girls and winds up drowning himself. So in the end, you know, they, they got their revenge without having to get their hands dirty, I guess.
0: They had to sacrifice themselves to get that. But I like what you say is evil is going to destroy itself anyway. Probably the most stunning image of the entire film for me came at the very end, <clears throat> and that is when, I keep calling her the Vixen, but you guys are referring to her as Tina, that must have been her character name, is when she's dead or dying, the tide has come in and she's floating amongst all the seaweed. But just for me, that the way that was composed, that shot was was stunning. But also, all I could think of is, my God, the chiggers <laughs> that these poor actors must have endured. <laughs>
1: Yes, because it's not just like the ocean coming in. This this area of where they're shooting is like a marsh or something, so it's all full of this just gross-looking seaweed and algae, and the water's all brown and horrible. So, yeah, you kind of feel like, oh, man, the, the infections, they must have suffered. Like, everyone just left the set went home every night and took a ton of antibiotics and just hoping they wouldn't gangrene from the <laughs> water they were in.
0: What do you guys think about a rating for this film? Hot. This is. I've been looking forward to this since we started. We can discuss the high points, the low points. What do you guys think? Everybody's afraid to go first.
3: <laughs> I normally go first. I'll go first. Um, I'm gonna give it a three. Naked vagina murals on the wall in the brothel. <laughs> the ten. I don't know. It was. It was weird. Like Clint said, the good part is like Tina was stunning. Wasn't hard to look at. The rapey scenes were pretty bad. But, I mean, I I understand this whole interview has kind of made me appreciate brian has taken it brian clark has taken it you know the artsy way where brian godsell and i are just kind of some dummies (laughs) that are like strictly on the content in front of us not looking into the deeper meaning of it i understand it was you know probably a work of love by the director but it just wasn't for me and i think three was being generous that's where i'm at
0: We'll say Brian Clark for the end. That's the best for last. Spooky Brian. Spooky Brian, what do you think?
2: Well, I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. I mean, it wasn't a bad movie. I've seen a lot worse movies than this. The acting was kind of weird. I did what parts of the story I could understand I enjoyed. Visually, it's stunning. The whole movie looks good. The cam works good. I kept coming across... Is it Zombie Lake? That's one of his movies?
1: Well, yes and no. I'm glad you brought that up because... Roland usually gets lumped in with like worst directors of all time. This guy's movies are crap, largely because people point out Zombie Lake. That was not a project of love, as you were saying, Jason, for him. That was a thing for hire. Actually, uh, Jess Franco was originally supposed to direct that. And the producers were such cheapskates that Jess fucking Franco was like, you know what, this is too Shoddy of a thing for me to make, which I don't know if you guys are real familiar with Jess Franco or not. Dude made like I don't know 200 movies or something in his lifetime. Was not averse to low budgets, so a movie being too cheap and crappy for Jess Franco to be like "fuck this, I'm out." <laughs> that tells you something <laughs> about it. But Roland loved to make movies, and he was offered the like here Franco fucked off. You want to make this movie? It's like yeah, I'll make it because it's making a movie. So he did it for the love of making movies. But that was not a project that he himself was guiding through the whole thing it wasn't his script it wasn't his actors it wasn't you know whatever he was just a hired gun on that movie so for all of you listening out there don't blame zombie lake on genre watch some of his actual you know movies from the heart to get a good idea of of the kind of filmmaker he is
2: this movie did point me in the direction of like oh there's other movies he's made that look interesting that i want to watch i will watch more of his films this movie didn't scare me away from watching any of his other films and there's directors I've watched a movie and I'm like, I don't know that I could ever watch another movie by this guy because you're a big Joe Bob fan. I I'm a big Joe Bob fan. And he says a lot, you can do anything, but don't be boring. And the, the movie wasn't, there was times that I was like, okay, I you've been raping this girl for five minutes. Can we move on to the next point of the story? Like, I wasn't bored, you know, and it's I could watch another one of his movies with a crowd, and I'm sure it would be a blast. It was something like, I would go to Tad Good's birthday party and see, and I'd be like, oh, that was a fucking blast. So, yeah, five, what did I say, five unibrows out of ten. So, is that a, if there's two brows, but they're connected, yeah, it's still five, yeah.
0: He's like, one divided by four, carry the two. <laughs>
2: Just thinking, my math makes about as much sense as my understanding of this movie. So yeah,
0: <laughs> you're you're talking about a, a group viewing, like with Tad and them, and it, it reminds me of what I've been saying the past few episodes. As the days and weeks go on, you bastards just get sicker and sicker. Hey, gang, let's all get together and watch these women get raped. Yay! Where's my mug of beer? No, you know it's it's funny, Brian Clark. You said that. uh the director has been described as, you know, a terrible director and whatnot. I, for, I forget the exact word you use or like the worst director ever, but I, I didn't come across that. But the word boring actually kept coming up in my research. A lot of people were accusing him of being one of the most boring filmmakers ever. Um, I'm actually glad we had this conversation because my appreciation of this film has increased slightly. <laughs> I'll take it. No, no. And, and I'm serious is so, this, this is what I first wrote, is that nothing about this film was successful. The story or the lack thereof, was it was confusing. It contradicted itself. I feel it was poorly told. Everything from the pacing to the editing to some of the odd stuff that we had already discussed, I'm not going to repeat, um, to the lack of eroticism to why the hell was some chick a clown, it was all completely lost on me, and I gave it one out of ten stuffed pigeon strokings. But I'm glad we had this conversation. I'm actually glad that you recommended this film because... I have a little bit better appreciation for it now. I just think it was, what's the word I'm looking for? It wasn't meant to be taken literally, but I feel that he, that's how he presented it. So if it was presented as more of a um, conceptual film or more of an artsy film, I'm like, okay, I get why all this weird stuff's happening. They're metaphors, it's, it's a reason. I, c- I could have got into it a little bit better. And I think maybe that's what he's trying to accomplish, but it was told in this very literal, literal format. So now having a better understanding of the movie, I am going to up it. I'm going to go with Jason. I'm going to give it three out of 10 pigeon strokings because, I mean, I, you rip the head off the one and you still want to keep going. You need a couple more. So I'm going three out of 10 stuffed pigeon strokings.
1: Well, hey, that's that's pretty good. If, the, if our conversation today increased the movie's worth in your eyes by two whole pigeons, I, I'll take it. Now, <laughs> this is not my favorite of his movies. Nor do I think it's necessarily best. Now you tell us. And maybe I should have picked one like uh, Grapes of Death or or Living Dead Girl, which are a little more literal, uh, in their, in their storytelling and have more gore and, and things. But I feel like that though, I love those movies, but I don't think they're quite as representative of his overall work. Because like I said earlier, for the most part, he tends to shy away from a lot of the gore. He put that into a few later movies to make producers happy. You know, we're, we'll sell more tickets. The, the American movies are getting more and more graphic and we have to keep up kind of a thing. He's mostly known as the sexy French vampire guy because his first movie was a, a vampire movie that through some machinations of there was a series of uh, riots and uh, this big social movement going on in France at the time, which resulted in shutting down a lot parts of cities and distribution channels falling apart. And so his first movie, The Rape of the Vampire, was one of only two movies available to be seen in all of France for like a couple of weeks. So by default, it made a shit pile of money. And then... After that, his producer was like, okay, you're the vampire guy. Make another one. Uh, so this was one of the first movies he got to make away from the vampire mold. So I wanted to pick something that was kind of a standalone. It wasn't part of the vampire thing, but still fairly representative of his sort of atmospheric, ethereal. You were saying a lot of people refer to him as one of the most boring directors. And I mean, I get that. I have I really dig a movie that's just all vibe and atmosphere. So that's why I, I, I love his movies so much. But um, like I said, this this isn't his best. It's not my favorite. I just wanted to pick something that felt representative of what he could do that wasn't just vampire cinema. So I will give this one six and a half. No, let's go seven. I'll give this movie seven decapitated pigeons uh, out of ten. But yeah, I'm I'm glad to say that you guys said you wanted to, to watch more of his stuff. Please do check out some more of it. Lips of Blood is fantastic. Uh, Living Dead Girl is great. There's so many excellent (laughs) movies in in his catalog. And and maybe someday uh, over time, you'll Stockholm Syndrome yourself into becoming a fan like I am.
0: Well, I think it's cool because it sounds like Brian and Jason are going to get together with Tad and a group of people, drink beer, and watch the, this movie. Uh, Brian Clark, it sounds like you and I are going to get together and just rip the heads off of pigeons. So, hey, let's why not both? Hey, exactly. That's uh that's the foreplay. I don't know. Anyway, um, Brian Clark, we appreciate you being on the show. We're glad that we got to know a little bit more about you, uh, even though. We didn't really rate this movie super high, at least, Jason, and I didn't. I I am glad that I was exposed to something else. Again, I'm super glad because it exposed me to the Kino Cult app, which uh, I, I intend on exploring, so thank you for that. Everybody, make sure you check out Putting the Ground to Sleep and Other Weird Tales. Brian Clark's book. Make sure you check out Scream Magazine. You can subscribe to them or just grab one off the shelf at a, your local comic shop, I'm assuming. But Brian, is there is there anything that uh, you'd like to add or you know, ways that people can connect with you and, and see, you know follow up and see what you got going on?
1: Uh, you can find me on Facebook. That's about the only social media I do, but I have an author page on Amazon, so whenever I get another thing out, include it there. Um, as far as Scream, yeah, you can get them at Barnes & Noble. You probably have to ask your local comic shop. I don't know if it's something they necessarily just always can Carry, but I know Brian has uh, requested it from from his local shop and they've started carrying it. So, yeah, tell your tell your local shop to carry Scream uh, support local stores for sure. Check out uh, Coagulate, the 2022 rehearsal demo. That's the one that I've got uh, voiceover work on. And uh, there's an upcoming band called Adversion, which I also have some some voiceover narration bits on the their EP that should be out later this year. And yeah, I think that's about all I've got going for right now.
0: That's way more than what we probably have going on in a little bit when we talk about what we're going on, and we're all going to go, uh, I don't know. Uh, Brian Clark, uh, uh, pronounce the name of this movie. The Demoniacs. Yes, thank you. was made in 1974, was set in, I'm assuming, the 17th century, and so that kind of goes along with horror history. So now that we've talked about an older film, let's get into some horror history. A date which will live in infamy.
3: Time. Time.
2: Time. Time. so on this day july 12th in 1882 todd browning producer director writer he was a writer director producer for london after midnight dracula freaks The Devil Doll, and Mark of the Vampire. He was like one of the early directors of horror movies then. I was doing some research and people were like, he was the father of horror movies. And I know most of us know Freaks that kind of ruined his career, but I didn't realize he had done all this other stuff. A lot of us know London After Midnight. I don't know if I've ever seen it, but I know the movie. I wonder what it was like back in the days
3: like that, like 1880s, because horror was probably frowned upon.
0: You would think so in like legitimate society. They were like, who is this heathen bearing him at the stake? Well, it was
2: also different back then. Like you didn't go see Phantom of the Opera with blood and guts and boobs and stuff dripping off the screen. It was more of a suspenseful horror. I don't know if you've seen the original Phantom of the Opera. There's like inclined scare than jump scare and you know it's all shadowing and people went apeshit when they pulled his mask off at the end now you see it and you're like oh yeah
0: that's one thing i like about about when you look back in the the history of any genre but obviously we're talking about horror is like you say like back then it was like a Saturday morning cartoon now. But I remember my dad, my dad who he passed away in 2013. He was born in uh 55. And I remember him telling me, and he was like never afraid of anything. But he's like, yeah, when I was a kid, he uh would watch Outer Limits and you know the early Twilight Zones. He said, Clint, those scared the shit out of me. It's just amazing because you go back now and some of them are eerie they're entertaining, but by today's standards, like what the hell were you afraid of?
2: Well, like The Exorcist. Now we watch that, and I mean, it still has some parts that you're like, "Oh, I can't." But uh, back then, people were leaving the cinema, passing out, vomiting, and <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And go back and watch a, that for the first time. Wouldn't that be just a hell? Of, if you had a time machine, you know, people are like, "I'd go back and bet on the Bears to win the Super Bowl in fucking '85," or you know, some shit like that. And I'm like, "I'd go back." and watch Basket Case on 42nd Street, <laughs> fucking New York. Like, what? Like, I don't, yeah, like, I want to go back and see Jaws for the first time. And, like, we talked about, um, was it Ghostbusters and Gremlins came out on the same day? Mm-hmm. You imagine going back and just be like, oh, I want to take it for Ghostbusters. And then you could go see Gremlins after that. Like, how fucking fun that would be to do that kind of shit.
0: And then go to the video store on the way home and rent a fresh... Just put-on-the-shelf copy of Faces of Death. Oh, man. (laughs) And the older I get, the sadder I get.
2: No one's going back in time to watch this movie, though. It's released July 12th and 2002 Halloween Resurrection.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, stop. That gets watched more than Demoniacs. <laughs> hey,
0: Brian, did you know that it was Brad Laurie who played Michael Myers in Resurrection? I think I heard that from somebody once. <laughs> was it?
3: Are you sure? I don't
2: I don't know.
0: <laughs> so also
2: released on that day in 2019 was Crawl. Can't remember. I think Jack and I did a double feature. Hereditary, or not Hereditary, Midsomer came out around the same time as Crawl. I want to say we did Crawl. And then Midsummer, or maybe it was Crawl and Hereditary. I don't fucking remember.
3: Well, it's no Ghostbusters and Gremlins.
2: Well, no, no, That's, but they were both good.
3: <laughs> they're yeah, both good movies. They are.
0: I still haven't seen Crawl. I've wanted to. I still haven't watched it. Oh
3: yeah, it's it's good. It's like Kingdom of the, the Spiders,
2: but in Florida with alligators. So it's also like Jaws in Florida with alligators instead of spiders. It's one of those movies. (laughs) July 14th in 1939, Sid Haig was born. You know, Sid Haig, Spider Baby, Galaxy of Terror, The Devil's Rejects, House of a Thousand Corpses, Halloween, and High on the Hog.
0: And a whole bunch of 70s exploitation films,
3: too.
2: I need to see Spider Baby. I've never seen that movie.
3: That's someone I wish I could have met. Oh, for sure.
0: I met Sid yeah. once uh 2014, 12 I can't remember, something like that, at Motor City Nightmares. Yeah,
2: I always heard he was a super nice guy. His autographs were always relatively cheap, like he didn't price anybody out autographs, even as he got older and got more famous.
0: He wasn't not a nice guy, but I think if I had boobs, he would have been nicer. That's just kind of the impression I got. Can't blame the guy. Hey.
2: July 14, 1910, William Hanna was a director-producer- and writer of Hanna-Barbera Productions and created Scooby-Doo. And I'm talking about this in the fucking car with Tiffany, and she's like, well, that's not horror related. And I was like, "Or of course it is. Yeah, I was like, how do you think most kids transition to horror movies? They fucking watch Scooby-Doo when they're growing up, and then they're like, I want to dig deeper into this. She's like, well, I like Scooby-Doo, and I don't like horror movies. And I was like, well, not everybody's fucking cool like me. Sorry about
0: <laughs> you. <laughs> Tiffany, no disrespect, but the show opens with a bunch of bats flying out of a haunted, decrepit mansion. And then Scooby-Doo, the title kind of like wafts up like a ghost. And if you like Scooby-Doo, but you don't like horror, that tells me that deep down, you really like horror.
2: She's just not ready to transition to being a cool person. I get it.
0: I have something to add to horror history today. Is that okay? So check this out. Nothing to do with the date. But on January 17th, 2007, Creep Show 3 was released. Why am I bringing this up? Because <laughs> last night I sat down because it's uh, for free now on IMDb TV or from Freebie. Creepshow 3 was on there. Never seen it. Always wanted to see it. I know everybody hates it. It's a Creepshow movie. I got to see it. But now I know why everybody shits on it. Holy gosh. Not good? No, it had some redeeming qualities and I think it had some potential. It's a stretch to say that. But I will say this, that... I dare say in its own right, it might be better than the movie that, that we covered. It might be better than <laughs> Demoniacs.
2: It may be a three and a half dead pigeons. Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so the last little bit of horror history on July 17th in 1987, RoboCop and Jaws the Revenge were both released. That'd be another
0: fun wow. one to go back and do. Which one do you watch first? RoboCop. Do you know which one you watch second? The second one is you watch RoboCop again. <laughs> and then
2: when they kick you out of the theater, you go to a different theater and watch Jaws of Revenge.
0: Yeah, they're actually handing out tickets uh, for free to go see Jaws of Revenge. <laughs> like, here, can you please fill this theater? So we- So
2: and then in uh, 1950, PJ Souls was born. I heard she's in some movies. Devil's Rejects and Carrie, Uncle Sam. That Halloween 2010, I don't know if anybody's seen that. And then uh, Halloween, there was like an original Halloween. Before like all these remakes that were really good, there was one way back.
3: <laughs> I thought you were just going to name all the other ones
2: and not like that one. It was at the end of all the of the list. It was after Carrie and Uncle Sam. That was like the highlights of her.
0: I just watched her about a week ago in uh, Rock and Roll High School with Dick Miller and Mary Warnoff and The Ramones. and Then last little bit in
2: 1964. Heather Langenkamp was born, Nightmare on Elm Street, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, West Craven's new nightmare.
0: She is, as we speak, finishing up day three at Astronomicon 6.5 here in Michigan up in, uh, are they in Livonia? I think they're in Livonia. Yeah. Over, over by Detroit. Thought about going, but just didn't do it.
3: Is that the one Kevin Smith is at too?
0: Yeah, I think it's the main reason they did the, they did the 6.5 is because when they did 6 earlier this year, we had a blizzard here. Kevin wasn't able to make it in and there was a handful of other guests. So to make it up, they kind of... Shit, maybe it isn't going on today. Maybe it was only a two-day con. I can't remember. But yeah, they, they made it up to the fans and brought him and the other people who couldn't make it. And additional people. Oh, cool story about that. Way off topic. So I don't know if you guys saw this, but Josh from our, our friend Josh from Bootleg as Fuck Toys. He was there. Did you see his post about he made the dick-shaped bullets? for um Tom Savini for Dust to Dawn and then he made the uh the maniac NES game and Tom Savini just came over to his table and if i understood it correctly just kind of showed up unannounced looked at all the stuff and just started signing them all and said here you go they oh how fucking cool is that
2: yeah, I talked to him the other day because I was he had posted some more cartridges. And I was like, how much are those cartridges? And he's like 20 bucks. I was like, oh, fuck. I know I'm going to get the Joe Bob one in a, a flashback. But I was like, I might have to look at some of the other ones, see what he has.
0: Well, you'll probably want to get the Return of the Living Dead one that he had, too. That was the first one he came out with. Damn it, Clint. You're spending all my money for me. <laughs> Buy two. I'll spend more of your money for me. Uh, All your money will be like today's today in history. It'll be gone. History. Yeah.
3: You got anything, Jason? I feel like I should just record something and we'll just play it every time it's my turn to talk. <laughs> so what do you got going on, Jason? Let's see. Let me look at my calendar. Let's see. I work. I work. I work. Boring. Boring. Work. And then I work. <laughs> That's it. Nothing exciting going on. Nobody invited you to anything? <laughs> Still not. No. I totally forgot. I totally forgot about that. Nope. Everybody's like, nah, let's leave this loser alone.
0: I had a couple people get a hold of me and be like, Clint, I want to invite Jason, but should I? And then I was like, fuck, no, he's not even going to show up. He says he's going to, but he's not going to. So I wouldn't bother wasting your time. Pretty much <laughs> it. It's, uh... We love I you. I don't know. <laughs> I said, we love you. He said, I don't know. <laughs> What do you got going on, Brian?
2: I don't think I really have anything either. I mean, we will just be packing up from that little show we're going to have earlier in the month, 4th of July. You know, everybody celebrates that. And then getting ready for our trip to Michigan. We're going to go to Michigan. That'll you know, be like the week after this episode comes out. Going to let this episode out, and then I'm going to go to Michigan, have a bunch of fun, do the zoo, do the aquarium, go to the convention, hang out with Clint. Yeah, that'll that'll be my big trip. And then the week the week after that is that's flashback, Jason. We're finally getting close enough to flashback through this month. Yeah, that'll be flashback. Yeah,
3: I wanted to mention it because I'm uber excited for it, but I've talked about it a lot and save something for the next episode because
0: I will actually have something going on. So the Detroit Zoo, they just had a baby draft there. Maybe a couple weeks ago, I think my mom was telling me about it. I was like, oh, that'll be perfect. I was like, by the time Brian comes up with Finley and, you know, Tiffany, they can go check that out. Yeah,
2: we're actually, I'm not going to the zoo because they're going to go on Saturday. So I'll be hanging out with you at a different kind of zoo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to do the aquarium and then there's a Peppa Pig thing we're going to do. And then they're going to go to the zoo on Saturday. So Tiffany was like, if.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure they'll announce it. They'll be able to find out when they get there. But yeah, let her know that there is a newly born baby draft.
2: Tiffany's like, if either of Clint's girls are bored and they want to go to the zoo with us, they're more than welcome. I was like, well, I ask them. I don't know if they'll want to go. I mean, but
0: no, I appreciate the offer. I'll let them know. Chances are they're they're going to be a you know wanting to be at the convention, especially Boots. She's kinda she's kinda got the bug. And you know, Hannah's you know, she's sixteen now and driving. Her hers is a different type of zoo now, also. I bet that makes you
2: proud that you could take Hannah to the shows and she's got like that itch and that bug to like to sell and talk and take in all that horror stuff, just immerse herself in it.
0: With boots it does. So like I say, Hannah's the older one and she's kinda I was about to say she she's kinda departed a little bit. Um but you know what? if at any point in our lives together, whether it's for a brief moment when they're 12, because because Hannah and I used to connect over the haunted house, you know what I mean? And then that went away. Now she's getting older and exploring, going through changes and exploring life and finding her own self. If at any point I can share... Something I enjoy with them. Like right now it is Boots. She loves the conventions. You know, we love creep show comics and the same movies. Um, so it's great to be able to share that part of my life with them, even if for a brief moment in time.
2: Yeah, it's a, I saw a quote the other day and it was like really hit home as a parent. And uh, somebody had asked a lady, what's the best part about being a parent? She's like watching your children grow up. And she's like, what's the worst part about being a parent? Watching your children grow up because, you know, they're going to age and they're going to leave. And I was like, man, that's deep.
0: No, because I look back at, you know, stuff stuff you post about Finley and everything. And I really miss that age with my girls just because everything was new. I mean, I remember going with Hannah down to the park behind Wesco, which I'll show you guys when you get here. uh, Gas station deli right by us. And um Oh, yeah, you guys have seen it. and um, Yeah, we went out, donuts. They built that when Hannah was about Finley's age. So we would pack a lunch, go play at the park, and then we just sit there and watch them, you know, the big bulldozers construct the building. And it was fun and fresh and new. And, you know, you just can't do stuff like that anymore. So you got a, a great time. So back to horror stuff. I guess it is kind of horrible to be a parent, watch kids grow up because you're scared to death what's going to happen to them in this crazy-ass world. Do you want to know what I got going on in this crazy-ass world? <sighs> Way too much. Kind of the same thing, like I said the last episode, this month of July is I've got off, meaning I don't have any shows to be at or whatever, but I am gearing up for Motor City Nightmares back-to-back with Flashback. So I'm going to be spending some time restocking, hopefully creating some new stuff to offer through InkMirrors.com. Working with the Valentine Bluffs filmmakers for a few knockoff toys for their table offerings at some of the conventions they're going to be hitting here in the near future. Just some fun stuff for them to uh, present to their fans. The one thing, oh, this is crazy. I can't talk about it yet because nothing's official. You guys, Brian and Jason here, know what I'm talking about, but it's pretty big. The funny thing about it is, It's very related to the last big news tease that I did for a while, and then it kind of fell. It went away, so I just kind of quit talking about it. So I got something big in the works. I had an idea. Um, It stuck with a few people. Things are in the works, and I hope I can give you some more details soon about meeting certain celebrities at a certain place while watching a certain movie, hopefully with certain celebrities. And ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. That's about what I got going on. Well, and then I guess on top of that, you know, getting the house ready for the Godsills to invade my home. Yep. I thought, I honestly thought, and this isn't a dig. I thought, you know, I wonder if I should put up some of my collectibles. Finley's four. A four-year-old is a four-year-old. I don't care who who the four-year-old is. I thought, maybe I'm going to put some stuff up. And then I thought, you know what? No. Um, I'm not going to be Will Farrell pharaoh yeah will pharaoh in legoland to be like oh you can't touch it i broke out the crackle i'm just trusting that you guys are like no finley don't pick up that thousand dollar toy and throw it on the floor so no finley don't no finley don't throw your keys at the limited at the limited exclusive thing that's sitting out in the open please thank you no i won't give her any keys Yeah.
3: (laughs) hi jason I'm going to have to start checking my keys at the door. <laughs> like, here's my keys, Clint. <laughs> like, it's, it's going to fucking pat uh, you down. Here's some
0: rubber oh, gloves. Oh. Yeah. Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> that didn't sound right. <laughs> On
3: my way.
2: So now that we've heard from our... <laughs>
0: sorry. <laughs> that visual stuck with you, huh?
2: If you want us to start a Patreon so you can watch Jason get patted down, shoot us a message.
3: <laughs> that's top tier
0: <laughs> you watch one borderline erotic foreign French subtitled film and now all of a sudden you want to get padded down mm-hmm. wait I'm the one who suggested that right oh boy yeah. help me
3: yes captain
0: <laughs> Jason's gonna be Tina <laughs> hey,
2: hey. Yeah, she was beautiful oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah.
3: alright take us home Brian
2: I changed my mind. I don't wa- I don't want to go back in time to see Jaws. I want to go back in time to see Tina. Yeah. <laughs> changed my mind. So now that we've heard the news and why we're poor, heard from our guest Brian Clark and that Demonicus movie, What Are We Up To? History. Don't forget to check out the I Like It Spooky Horror Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. Listen to the Spill the Guts segment of the show every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And take care. Bye-bye bye
0: hey guys want to give a quick shout out again thanking brian clark for being on the show talking to us about his writing in screen magazine make sure you pick up his book watch french films because he likes them bye hey what's wrong with you man show some fucking respect for the dead will you